Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels part 114. Last week we saw where Jesus started a series of parables concerning the end of the age, so to speak, and specifically he was highlighting this unknown nature of the coming of the end of the age that Right. No one truly knows, not even angels, nor the Son of Man, but actually only the Father only in heaven. And then he expounds on that by bringing up references to the days of Noah and the flood about people were eating and drinking and unaware, unassuming. And then you have groups of two and one gets taken away and one gets left. And we tried to um, address this misconception that the it's the left behind is not actually the unrighteous but the righteous those that are taken away are the wicked or the disobedient or those that are not on God's team which yeah. was an interesting and maybe convicting new thing to wrestle with for a lot of people um, and then we continued with um a parable about a master of a house expecting a thief coming in the middle of the night. And Jesus is saying, like, if the master knew when the thief was coming, don't you think that he would be prepared so that he wouldn't be broken into? And he uses that to say, like, how much more, like the coal of a comber, how much more should you be ready? Because God right. is coming at a time that you don't expect, um, which is really good for him to bring up. Um, and then finally, he he we ended with him saying that those who are ready when the master comes back, that master is going to give him more responsibility. It's going to like good news. Yeah, more responsibility, more gifts, more blessings, and those that were not ready, like they're going to be taken away. They're going to be put with the hypocrites, the place with weeping and gnashing of teeth. They're not going to be a part of the festivities of the kingdom and the world to come. Yeah, that was the, yeah, so, uh, one servant who was supposed to be caring for the others was kind of the the imagery there. And, and of course, that fits with so much of what we've talked about, how we are part of our Christian walk is caring for one another, etc., that the little ones, we brought, yeah, so much that, that just, it brings it all back to mind. Well, Here's the thing. We talked about this idea. We, we introduced it as a series of six parables, which we're going to end up talking about that number more as we go, but yeah, whatever, we'll worry about that when we get there. So we've done a couple of them, and we're ready for parable number three. So this is in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. It's a little bit long. Bear with us while we read, and then we'll talk about it. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took 
flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And boy, now we're really getting to the heart of we don't know when this is going to come, right? <laughs> Now, it tells us that this parable is explicitly about the kingdom. You know, throughout the podcast, we have talked about how, man, so many of them, I don't know that every single one, but so many of them are about the kingdom, even when it doesn't explicitly say it. But this one says it explicitly. It points to the Messianic banquet. But in this parable, we've got 10 virgins. Now, a virgin... It might represent purity, as in they were untouched, and it uh, might represent holiness, that they remain separate. It could also be that it isn't technically intended the way we might think of it today, those, those sort of ideas. It, it may only be referring to the fact that they're young women and, and that young women, there's sort of the inference that because they're young, but, you know, let's say they are of marriable age, uh, that therefore they are virgins or whatever. It doesn't really matter. We get the idea. Young, unmarried, virgin, girl, what, you know, you get the picture. Now, 10, Samuel, we talk about this sometimes with numbers. What's a, a common uh, understanding for the number 10? Um... I know that 10 is the combination of 7 and 3. 7 represents fullness, 3 represents community, so like the fullness of community. Yeah, yeah, very good. That and and yeah, I mean that's a that's a really good way to talk about it. Sort of by itself alone not not thinking so much of the 7 and the 3, 10 often represents a complete whole. And a way that we might think of that is you, I don't know, in your life, you may have been part of a thing that says, hey, we have this group, and when we have meetings occasionally, we have to make sure we have enough people for it to be an official meeting. And, and you've probably heard the term quorum. We have a quorum. We have enough people to make this meeting official. Well, 10 is the number of a quorum for an assembly in Israel among Jews, right? So that's another, it's, it's a whole. It represents a complete whole. So there's that. Culturally, these versions, 
they would likely have been friends of the groom, because remember, they're inviting the groom and the bride back to their new place. They're the welcoming party for the wedding feast, groom's newly newly prepared house. Who prepared the house, Samuel, culturally? Uh, Isn't it the family of the soon-to-be bride? It's the father of the groom. Ah. Yeah, it was the father that decided when the house was ready. Remember all that story? Hmm. Yeah, it fits very well with Jesus and when is he uh, when is God going to send him back to get his bride? The father knows when the house is ready, right? All that. It's a cool picture. Uh it appears that this was a hey, do this for me. Greet us when we come back and and you can join in the feast. It's you know, that sort of arrangement. Now, all of this info, I you know, it's a little bit speculative because because we don't know a whole lot about this particular custom. Uh, we know a lot of different customs, but this one seems a little outside the box. But anyway, let's talk about what we got here. Jesus is the bridegroom. The wedding feast. Okay, this is the messianic banquet. Now, normally, we would expect that it is, I don't know, we, or we might say the saints or the saved or his faithful ones or the church, whatever you want to call it, that, that we would be the bride. However, this is a parable. And so, again, you don't want to push things outside of their box or whatever. Just go ahead and take it for what it's actually saying. We are represented in the virgins. And again, how many, how many points is a parable normally trying to make, Samuel? I think a singular point, right? Yeah, yeah. We want it to make a singular point. And so, I mean, we've seen God and Jesus, you know, represent... I mean, wasn't Jesus a thief in Mm -hmm. one? And I mean, right, we see people playing, you know, unexpected roles. But it's not to say that that Jesus is a thief or even that he is like a thief in thief kind of terms, right? And so the fact that we aren't the bride, but instead we're the virgins, that's not a bad thing. It just just follow the parable. Don't be too stiff. Just let it be what it is. The five wise virgins were transformed and allowed God's instructions to mold and change them. They they were wise because they understood how to act wisely according to God's instructions, God's ways. They could discern right and wrong. They could discern good and evil according to God's definition and not their own. And so you see them here walking, acting according to those lessons. Now, the five foolish versions, okay, I guess you could say they haven't really been transformed or at least not much, not enough. Now, uh, just as a side note, there are some that suggest the bride is Israel proper and that these virgins are the Gentiles. And the only thing I can really say to that is mm, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I, I, it doesn't hold a lot of weight with me, but I just want to throw that out there. Some people look at it differently. But back to what we think makes sense, the lamps that they're carrying, well, they represent the light of the world. And we could say that that is God's will, God's ways. And the oil, and 
you know, especially the extra oil, well, that represents the righteous merit of the saints that they have gained through faithful, loyal obedience. So in a sense, the oil represents the, their own righteousness, if you will. That's what fuels the lamps that are the light of the world. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, interesting though. Okay, so so here we are. We're trying to divide between the five righteous and the five not, or, or you know, the five wise, the five foolish, whatever. But check this out. All of them fall asleep. Now, do you remember a phrase that we've been emphasizing in the last couple of uh, uh, episodes of the podcast, Samuel? Stay awake. Yeah. <laughs> This is crazy. So you've got five wise and five foolish, and they all fall asleep. It's it's very, very funny. The the things that you just don't see, Jesus is really slipping some good stuff in there. So considering the previous themes, the previous parables, I, I mean that's kind of disappointing. Although the focus here in this parable is really on the folly, you know, the lack of oil. So I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't make too much of it, but it definitely emphasizes the danger for for everyone to falling asleep, not staying awake in this metaphorical sense we're all talking about. So anyway, it would appear they all slept while they all slept that their lamps continued burning. And and that we we sort of infer that because that's why they ran out of oil. That's why they needed to, you know, do some maintenance work on their lamp, whatever. And then also after burning for all those hours, you know, this idea of trimming their lamps. Now, most of us think, you know, you're going to trim the wick. That's a thing that we understand from having lamps, even in the modern day, whatever. But I think it, it may have entailed uh, more than that for them. Their lamps were, you know, not quite like what we do today. So anyway, but but we do understand the idea of maintenance. Hey, you got to do a little work on your lamp to make sure that it continues to burn beautifully, brightly, you know, all that kind of stuff. So anyway, they had to do that. Now, when the bridegroom is finally announced, they all wake up, okay, and, and they prepare to greet him and his party. But as they each begin, or, you know, they're preparing their lamps, five of them realize, "Uh uh-oh, I don't have everything that I need. I don't have what is required at this moment. They haven't properly prepared for the thing that they have been asked to do. Now, does that remind you, Samuel, of at least the potential in what we recognize in the church all across the world, people who say that they're Christians, Mm. people who, you know, they go through some of the motions, but wow, we have been asked to do, you know, pretty amazing things. We've always said it's a high, high calling to be a Christian. They haven't prepared for the thing they've been asked to do. And so in this parable, scrambling then they try to get what they need from others who have prepared. And interestingly, I don't know that this is, you know, I don't know that this is teaching us that this is the best response, but in the parable, they're denied. Now, practically speaking, they, they probably could have made this work. 
and and, and it kind of makes the five who are actually prepared, the five wise ones, I don't know. You might think they kind of seem a little bit stingy or a little bit mean, but again, it's a parable. So, you know, don't don't push that too far. What we do know from the parable is that, hey, the lesson is that you need to be responsible. You need to be prepared and you need to do all this for yourself. What they do is they send them off to the dealers, which also, I don't know, that kind of seems like an extreme solution. They're at a building, at a place where people are, you really think that no one at that building has oil on hand? For anything? Is it really possible that there's no one even nearby? They have to somehow go, you know, quote unquote, into town to find a dealer, whatever. It seems like an extreme solution, but again, it's just a parable. And and in the parable, it actually fits because they need to be gone so that they miss his arrival. So again, don't focus so much on the details and the, the consequences or whatever thereof. It's understand what the parable is trying to tell us. Now, when the bridegroom finally arrives, the wise virgins are able virgins are able to greet him and enter the feast. And this, of course, is the outcome that we all want. We want to be the wise virgins. But what that means is we need to be the wise virgins who have prepared plenty of oil. Now, once they're inside, the doors are shut meaning no one else will be allowed in. Now, this wasn't an entirely uncommon practice. When someone was having, I don't know, some sort of dinner, some sort of party, whatever it might be, closing the doors at a certain point was actually a kindness for the guests. It was a way of avoiding interruption from late arrivals. It was a way of respecting and honoring the guests who had the respect and honor to show up on time prepared. So sadly, the five, the remaining five, well, they return, the door's already been shut. And so they're not allowed into the feast. And in this case, that's the messianic banquet. That's what it represents. And these five cried, Lord, Lord. But the bridegroom said, he didn't even know them. There's a couple things that we can see in this. Number one, they cry, Lord, Lord. They believe, like if we bring this forward to like the Christian community, they think, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm saved, whatever. Lord, Lord. But he doesn't let them in. In fact, he says he doesn't even know them, which sounds weird to us, but this was a common phrase back in first century Judaism, especially, but it crossed way more time than that. When a disciple wasn't being a good disciple in the eyes of his teacher, they were placed on the ban. That was the phrase. They were on the ban. And, and it disavowed any relationship between the teacher and the student for a short period of time, you know, maybe a month or something like that. And so this idea that he didn't even know them, he was disavowing that relationship. They were disciples, at least to some degree, and yet they were shut out. That's crazy, right? How long were these people shut out? You know, is this for the length of the Messianic era? And then maybe they're into the world to come or something? Or we don't know. But that is a really interesting picture and connection. Now, 
because we can't really know all those details and exactly what all of that means, we have to like walk away with the wisdom that we can discern. We as Christians must continually seek to know him more. Through knowing him, he can actually better know us, right? We're building that relationship by, how do I say this? Both of these are accomplished by walking with him. When you, when you try to understand from his scriptures what he desires of us as humans, what it is to walk as a true human, human what it is to be in his image, we both know him better and he knows us. Now, I'm sure that you could guess this knowing and learning, where are we going to get all this? Well, the majority of it's going to come from the Torah. It's all of the scriptures, but all of the scriptures have their anchor, their foundation in the Torah. And anyway, that's how we know how to walk it out. It's how we know him. It's how he knows us. The final warning, though, that he gives us is to watch, which actually it fits exactly with what we talked about in the early ones. To watch is to stay awake, to be prepared, to remain faithful, just like the other parables. We must live as if he might return in just the very next moment, because he might. It will be unexpected, and it will be unpredictable. There's a lot of stuff in there, Samuel. Got your... Ma- your bri- <laughs> Got your mind spinning on anything? Uh, yeah, I was spinning on one thing, and then I realized that it, it had holes, and so now I'm trying to like push that out, and then ask originally what I was going to, or bring it up. So now I'm reeling. Um, whoo, this parable is uh, a lot, Paul. Um, yeah, and I what I wanted to bring up was. Um, We may have talked about it in previous episodes before, but Jesus is bringing up a cultural concept that was very widely known and practiced in ancient, you know, Middle Eastern culture, patriarchal societies with people getting married, like in a a Badov household where you have, you know, a father taking care of his wife, his sons, his extended family, and then one of his sons goes off to find, you know, his his spouse. And whenever he he finds the one that he wants to pledge himself to, he says, "Like I'm going to go away and prepare a place for you." Like, and now if listeners, like, if that's ringing a bell for things that Jesus has said or will say, like, right. that's not on accident. Like, it's a he's bringing the listener and then later the reader to something they would have been familiar with. So the son goes back and he prepares his house by attaching it to his father's house, which (laughs) makes sense why you said at the beginning of this section that it's the father who determines when it's time for the son to go back because he is attaching his own property to his father's property, which I think is really cool. And so, you know, on the on the future bride's side of things, you know, you have no idea. It could be a month, could be a year. And so within yeah. their side of things, there's almost like you need to be ready to start the party, to start the ceremony 
whether it's seven o'clock in the morning or at uh, you know two two a.m. at night. Right. And and Jesus saying about staying awake and being ready applies to that as well because that was common among that culture because you know whenever the father said that you know the house is ready son go get your woman like you know i'm sure the excitement <laughs> and there was no waiting around so i just think right. that's really cool that jesus is bringing he, it's not like he's creating anything new he's he's doing what god has been doing since the beginning of the story whether it's t- the a retelling of a creation account in his own way or a flood narrative in this case it's a marriage narrative it's just he's continuing to do things he's been doing all along to teach us and to show us more of his plan. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh well, all of these they're they're just amazing pictures. And yeah, I'm so glad you spent some time talking about it. I kind of zipped over it really quickly. It's very different from the way that we're accustomed accustomed to to teaching or learning. And it, it's good for us to learn how to learn in this way. And so this series of parables is good. We've done a bunch of parables before. There's a lot. I'm hoping that, you know, as a whole in this podcast, our treatment of the parables helps people to relate to them a little better because I think as a general rule, we get kind of a a thin, a shallow sort of view of what the parables are talking about. We don't we don't really see all that's behind them or in them. And, and in fact, the funny thing is we often then take them too far. We try to read a lot of things into them that aren't really there, which is, you know, kind of funny, kind of ironic. But yeah, I don't know. This just, it's good stuff, Samuel. I love, mm-hmm. I love talking about these. Anything else before we do the next one? Mm-mm. All right, let's do it. The next one, you'll, you'll, oh boy, it's long. And it's appropriate because it's a journey parable, and apparently it's a long journey. So (laughs) let's read this thing, and then we'll talk. This might take a minute. This is Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. Wow, that's a lot. But here we go. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one, he gave five talents, to another, two, to another, one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done. Good and faithful servant, you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, 
Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant! You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed? Well, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right. Again, I know that was really long. And if you were listening, if you've been a part of this podcast for a while, Samuel? Deja vu. Yeah, sounds really familiar, right? (laughs) (laughs) Now, it is different in certain ways, but wow, so many things are similar. And this was back in Luke chapter 19, verses 12 through 27. And it really wasn't that long ago. That was in Gospels number 100. (laughs) Yeah, that was kind of a pivotal moment for us, right? But yeah, it's a very similar parable. Now, the reason that we kept it separate is because... You know, the context in which the parable was being delivered, all that, okay, they're, they're actually quite different. Now, it seems reasonable. In fact, I think that we would say it's likely even that Jesus really did use the same parable at different times. Another way to say that is Jesus told the same parables many times over and over, but he used them at different times, in different contexts, for different reasons, and sometimes they even had kind of a different meaning, if you will. Now, in Luke, the overall theme of this big old parable, uh, it included the idea that Jesus was God's Messiah sent to them, and that they were rejecting him. In Luke's telling, there was this added bit about the unwanted ruler. They sent off, you know, this little delegation. Hey, we don't want him to be our king or whatever. Uh, so, so there was that. Now, Luke also told us that Jesus wanted to, he was kind of addressing this incorrect expectation of those that, that did believe he was going to rise up as this conquering king of Israel right away. So as you can see, In Luke, there was kind of a different context, kind of a different emphasis, let's say. Now, 
There was also some similarities, though, similar to the theme that we see here at this point. Back in Luke, there was also uh, this idea of the delay of the kingdom. And so we, we see that also. Was, after a long time, he returned, right? So finally, in Luke, uh, we are to understand that, uh, well, part of what Jesus was talking about is for the Messiah, the suffering had to happen first. So, so it was that idea of two messiahs. There was th- th- this, this tradition that had developed that, well, there's going to be two messiahs. One of them is Messiah, son of Joseph. It was a suffering messiah. And then there was a, a Messiah, son of David, the conquering king messiah. And as it turns out, in a way, they were kind of right, but in another way, they were wrong because it's the same person. It's just that he comes first as a suffering messiah and then returns as a conquering messiah. So anyway, there's that. Now here, the parable, it's, it's kind of sticking with the themes that have already been established in our previous discussions and the, 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 the preceding parables. There's this idea of a delay. There's this idea that his return is unexpected and unpredictable. There's this idea that we are all to stay awake, that we're to be prepared. And there's the idea that we have to remain faithful, that we have to actually do the work, do our part, if you will. Now, for for all of the detail, there, there's actually a lot of detail that we could apply to this specific parable here at this point. But a lot of that, it's just going to be repeat. So we've talked about the different emphasis, the different point, if you will. But if you really want to hear more of the detail, you know what? Go back and listen to Gospels number 100. We're just going to stick with the summarization here. We're going to stick with the highlighting here. So at this moment, the the summary would be something like this. God and Jesus, or, or well, however you want to think of it, whichever one you want to relate to, they they leave us with, I don't know, property, wealth, resources. You have things in your life. You, you just do. Now, some have more than others. Some have, you know, what we might label as none. But, uh, you know, even then, there, there's always a little something, something, right? But we use those things. We leverage those things. And, and the thing is, we're supposed to do it as we are instructed in the Torah, according to God's will, according to God's ways, in his image here on the earth. We're supposed to be, you know, bringing justice and alleviating suffering, caring for the down and out, all of that stuff. If we do that, we are rewarded with more responsibility and then God, or Jesus, however you want to view that, okay, he's pleased with us, and we enter into his joy. And that joy is like, you know, eternal life, the the kingdom, etc. Now, as a reminder, and and hopefully we're saying this enough in the podcast, because I know we're saying it a lot. Samuel, all these things that we're doing, do they save us? They do not. No, no. God, Jesus, that's already been accomplished. All of these things that we do merely identifies us as truly his. And and if we do not do that, if we do not do these things, here's kind of the 
I don't know, the warning, the scary part, whatever you want to call it, we will be stripped of everything and we're going to face punishment in Gehenna at the very least. So there's that. Now, again, all the details, I mean, there's a lot. You, if, if you joined us late or you don't remember or whatever, you're probably going, yeah, but what about this? What about that? I believe that it's all covered back in Gospels number 100. So even if you've listened to it before, but especially if you haven't, you, know, you need to go back and listen. There's really good stuff in there. Fantastic parable. But we're going to try to stick with the theme. So, Samuel, don't ask me something that is going to be answered in Gospel 100, but... <laughs> What do you got? <laughs> no, I just was going to maybe give people, if somehow they're listening to this episode now and have not listened to Gospels 100, give them a little taste and preview. Um, because All right. I uh, I come back to this parable, and I still struggle with it at times because I'm like, why is this one servant calling the master, you know, severe, hard, that he's reaping what he does not sow. He's gathering where he didn't scatter. And like in this parable, I'm supposed to be seeing the master as like God. And I'm like, why why is God being compared to this unjust master? But then in, in Gospels 100, we talk about that is just this servant's interpretation of who he thinks his master is like it's it's not it's not who the true master is Uh, this this guy has a limited concept or understanding of what the master is trying to do to execute justice true justice and in some ways i think that this parable both here and in the luke version is a showcase of what the fear of the lord is and at least in Judaism's perspective, like it, this parable shows that the fear of the Lord is that the the ruling authority, God, will reward righteousness or, you know, obedience, faithfulness, loyalty, whatever, and he will punish disobedience, unrighteousness, like pursuing your own will, whatever. Yeah. And like it's that basic concept that propels the Jewish person to a life of loyalty and like holiness and um, I mean you know the the scriptures say it themselves like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom Uh, it's the gateway for us to truly become wise uh, within our life so I just wanted to bring those two tenets up yeah. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, and like just to bring it into modern English, this this poor last servant, he views the master's will as burdensome when the truth is the master's will is where you find true liberty and freedom. But he doesn't see it. He's got the wrong perspective. So, yeah. and that's often what we see in the church. They yeah. look at the Old Testament laws, all these things. Again, it's not a covenant obligation for us un- unless you're actually Jewish, but it, there's so much to be gained from it, and it is our true liberty, and we just we just often don't see it. Even if you apply it to like a, a parental side of things, like no one can say that true, right, correct parentage is rewarding children who are pursuing and doing the right things like wanting to adhere to the instruction that the parents are trying to 
have them follow for their benefit. And then on the flip side of that, a good parent is also willing to discipline uh, children right. when they're not. Like it, that's a basic concept that I feel like any person who has even a remote sense of logic would agree with. And like somehow we don't want to apply that to the God of the universe as well. Right, right. Yeah, you're exactly right. And that's a great image. I'm slightly more skeptical that everyone in the world recognizes that as a basic truth anymore. <laughs> but yeah, they're they're blind to it. They're they're uh, Yeah, the world of, is a little crazy right now. Yeah. But wouldn't everybody of all ages be saying the same thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's true. Yeah, man, all good points. All good points. Well, let's see if we can do any more damage. What do we got next? Uh, This is Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 33. Oh, I'm having fear that we're going to do another cliffhanger, but that's all right. Let's keep going. It says this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Okay. Now, we're going to call this parable number five. And a lot of people are going to go, why would that be a separate parable? You didn't actually finish it right? Uh, Okay, here's the thing. It's just, it's one of those common kind of scholarly debates. People are trying to figure out what's really going on here. Some people think some things are missing, some people, whatever, various stuff. So some people think it should be a separate parable. Maybe it should, maybe it shouldn't. Here's why I'm going to go ahead and separate it out. There are some scholars who believe that there was originally a parable about a shepherd with sheep and goats in addition to a separate parable about a king allowing or denying entrance into his kingdom, which, you know, that's the part that follows. Now, the theory is that either in the retelling, like what what ended up in Matthew here, or in the eventual text, as in like, no, Matthew had it right, but the text kind of got messed up before we got, you know, whatever versions we do have saved— Somehow the two got combined into one. Okay, and I'm not I'm not sure that I buy it. I'm I'm actually more of a hey, I don't think there really are six parables. I think there's only five. But whatever. They do raise some very interesting points and and it's 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 not hurting anything. It's it's not. So let's let's just talk about what we've got. Go with it as separate for the moment. This little bit has a really strong connection with Ezekiel chapter four, chapter 34 verses 11 to 23. And it's it's literally about a new shepherd who's separating some sheep, some rams, and some goats, that kind of thing. Now, in Ezekiel, you know, what we see written there, it appears to be addressing Israel alone, but by the time it's done, it's also including some gathering from the nations, gathering the sheep from the nations kind of interesting. In this parable, the shepherd is literally separating, you know, all of the nations, all of humanity, 
So some even suggest that the separation isn't, it isn't even about individuals. He's not even separating individuals. He's literally just separating nations. Now, I don't know if I agree with that either, but I'm just saying some people, there's, there's a lot to be seen in this parable and a lot of questions being asked, people trying to understand. So I'm just throwing a little bit, little out there, food for thought. That The thing is, as we continue, if it really is one parable, I mean, it's totally individualistic, but whatever, we'll see that when we get there. One thing that does seem maybe a little more clear is there's a, a similarity with the parables of the kingdom, where they have the, the kingdom growing slowly over time, and so it's kind of like the the wheat and the tares that grew up together, or when he was gathering both the good fish and the bad fish. Uh, etc., all those kind of things. In those parables, there was a separation at the end, and this parable, I don't know, it sounds a lot like those. In this case, the sheep represent the righteous, which would be the wheat or the good fish or whatever, and the goats represent the wicked, the, the weeds or the tares or the bad fish. Now, again, having said all that, like I've said, I, I'm not totally convinced. I'm, I feel good about it being just a single parable. Uh, it starts, I mean, this one, if you just read it right at the beginning, it starts with the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, and he will sit on his glorious throne. So the king, I mean, he's already there. It's just like he's, uh, he's using some symbolic language about a shepherd to paint the picture of what the king is doing. It's not like it's a separate parable. He's just painting a picture. Uh, the sheep represent citizens. The goats would be ultimately the non-citizens of that kingdom. And and then it just kind of continues with the story. People argue, I've presented it. You kind of understand that, you know, if, if you're ever talking to somebody and maybe they see it a different way, you know, give them a little room. It's okay. It's not really hurting anything. But it doesn't, it's not compelling for me. So before we go on, Sam, you got anything to add to that? Any commentary? No, I, I think it's beneficial to go back and read that reference that you brought up ezekiel 34 11 through 23 um, mm. while you were talking about this so far i just went and skimmed through it and there's the imagery there is so good and it yeah. i think it adds to this parable that you're establishing even more yeah by the way when we actually reference other places in the bible and all that kind of stuff samuel do we do that just for fun, or do we actually expect people to hit the stop button, go look it up, and see what the heck we're talking about? It would make your listening and reading and studying experience more rich by doing so. Yes. As we might say to our children, do you think I say things just so I can hear my own voice? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody listen to the podcast like, you ain't my dad, shut up. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, we, it's, I mean, we're, we're trying to be helpful. We bring them up because they actually are relevant and they matter. So yeah, go back and read it. It's good. All right, let's go on. See if we can fit this stuff in. So we're in Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 to 40. It says this, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. 
I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now, again, we're calling this parable number six, and the truth is I've, I've actually cut it in half. There's more of it to follow. But we've already stated we only see it as probably number five. But anyway, here's the outline. This king speaks to the sheep, those that are on his right, and he, he invites them into his kingdom. He, he's showing up, I am the king, here I am, come on into my kingdom. And he mentions that the kingdom was prepared for them from the foundation of the world. That's pretty amazing. He tells them that they are blessed by the Father. And that's pretty awesome. It's all good stuff, but it should kind of lead you to question why? Why are some people sheep and some people goats? What's the criteria for the separation? Thankfully, the king offers the reason. You fed me when I was hungry. You quenched my thirst when I was thirsty. Uh, you, you, you gave me uh, hospitality, uh, clothing, cared for me when I was sick, visited in prison, all of that. The king tells them that they did all of that for him or to him. They're totally confused. They don't remember doing any of these things for the king, right? And, and they literally review the complete list. When did, we didn't do any of that stuff. What are you talking about? But the king tells them that by doing it to the least of these, my brothers, that it was just as if they had done it to him. Okay, well, let's at least note that's pretty good news overall, right? But and I just want to say this as, as an alternative. The king didn't say things like, hey, you isolated yourself from the world and you ratherly, regularly gathered together with people and, you know, you believed the right stuff and, you know, you did the occasional mission to make yourself feel good or, or oh, you only listened to Christian radio, right? He didn't say those things. The king listed things that are practical, and they are justice and mercy and faithfulness. They are the weightier parts of the law. That was a recent podcast, right? He listed things that one would do when he understands the end goal of the law. It's, it's righteousness. It's imaging God. Now, are the other things I mentioned, like, you know, in some sense, isolating yourself from the world, like in the holiness sense, separating yourself, gathering together, believing the right, you know, trying to find the right interpretation, missions, and all, are any of those things bad? No. Are they good? Yes. But notice there are weightier things. Th those might be good, but there are weightier things. And 
at these weightier things. Samuel, we asked it before. We're going to ask it again. Are they effective for your salvation? They are not. No, Jesus did that. But listen to the parable. It's identifying you as a sheep and not a goat. Being a Christian and being allowed entrance into the kingdom really does require something of you, faithfulness. And the Torah, it's how we learn to do it properly. It's not covenant obligation, law like a rule. It's direction. It's instruction. It's good stuff. So I do have to address this one phrase, though. He says, the least of these, my brothers. And it's, it's a real debate. Does this mean, you know, like the least of my brothers, as in we should only be aiming our justice, mercy, etc. at believers, so the least of my brothers, or is it saying something more like the least of these, like you're, you're caring for the least of these, which by doing those things makes you my brothers, as in we should be aiming at all humanity, and it's our behavior that makes us brothers. Now, to be fair, there are good and reasonable arguments on both sides, and we're left with, you know, good questions on both sides. Does brothers mean humans, or does it mean fellow Israelites, or does it mean believers, uh, or whatever, is it those who are doing the will of the Father? And so, <laughs> Samuel's going to accuse me of acting Jewish. <laughs> For me, okay, I'm kind of in between. <laughs> and here's what I mean. I, 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 I promise I'm not just trying to hedge, okay? I think that plain, simple language, it should include all of humanity. We shouldn't limit our loving kindness to believers only. However, in the big story, we do also see often where God does it, other, you know, biblical heroes do it, whatever you want to call it, there's a lot of preference that we see in the text, a lot of preferring one over another. So, Let's say it this way. If I was in, I'm going to make up a situation that it required me making a choice. And I'm, I'm going to try to make this silly so you know where I'm not talking about anything particular. Let's say that I've got one can of beans, but I got two hungry families. One of those families, okay, they're, we would think of them as believers. That, that's our interpretation. And one family that is not. And I... Let's just say, I can't split up the can of, gein, the can of beans. I'm going to give it to one family and not another, okay? Well, in that situation, I am going to prefer the believers over the non-believers. And now, okay, yeah, leave room. Is it possible that God, through his Holy Spirit, might speak to me to do something different? Well, sure. And what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to obey that if, if I really think I'm hearing from God. But if I'm left to make my own decision, okay, I'm going to prefer the believers. Now, we, we've talked about this before. There's this idea of these little ones, and they are those who are believers, but they have either not by choice or 
by choice, they've made themselves somewhat needy among the brethren because they have they have so given to others and they, they have taken the place of a servant. They've taken the place of like how you would think of a child in the family, whatever. We, we need to be vigilant over their care as well. So all of these things play into it. So I, I don't read it as, hey, you, you helped those who are believers, therefore that was like helping me. I, I don't think it has to stop there. I think we can go beyond and, hey, if you're helping any human anywhere, I think that that's honoring God, and I think that's like doing it unto him. So anyway, there's that. And just to, to add to this, uh, Samuel, there's a legend. You may know it already, because I know you like to read a lot of the older Jewish stuff, whatever. But it's a legend about King Solomon. And it says that there was this, this I don't know, quote-unquote, bad angel that took Solomon's place. And Solomon was left to wander as a beggar. Remember, he was like, I mean, we always talk about David as being, you know, like the, the ultimate king of Jerusalem, but, but Solomon was definitely the one with the richest kingdom, if you want to say it that way. So Solomon's left to wander as a beggar. And, and he would go around trying to tell his story to people. No, I'm actually Solomon. This is what this angel did to me. People thought he was crazy. And in the end, things get turned around. He's returned to his throne, and here's the kicker. He was able to reward those who were good to him when he was at his most vulnerable. He was a beggar, and there were some people who actually, even though they thought he was crazy, they took care of him. Mercy, justice, right? You, you see it in that story. But as he was returned to king, he was able to reward those who were good to him and to punish those who weren't. And so there are some, you know, you can take it or leave it, whatever. Some suggest that this is kind of the basis or the backstory for Jesus's parable here, to which we say, mm, maybe, we don't know. But it is kind of a neat story, and it does, you know, it's relevant here in this spot. Uh, so anyway, I'll stop talking there. Samuel, what do you got? I actually have not heard that legend before, so that's oh. that's super cool. Good one. Um, I actually have a couple other legends to add to that uh, one before bring we Bring them leave. on. Do um, it. Well, let me back up just a second. Um, I don't think Paul is trying to argue that we should be like uh, deliberately selective in our generosity, like, oh, we only give to fellow like-minded believers and we're not not. taking care of those who are not on God's team. Like, absolutely, he's not saying that. And I would argue that in the day and age that we live in now where there's so much uh, scarcity mindset and this like uh, fierce gripping and holding on to the things that we have and not being willing to let go of some stuff that like practicing hospitality and generosity in general to no matter who it is could be a good practice to like start that new discipline in your life. But, um, Oh yeah. I like, I mean, I think this parable definitely is trying to, showcase that one of the kingdom attributes that God values and is going to like take an account of is charity and 
radical hospitality and it's really cool i actually just read this last night so that's perfect timing so and i had never heard of either one of these stories before so in traditional judaism the rabbis hold up like two of the most generous and hospitable people were uh job and abraham Mm. and um this one's cool so i mean again take this with a grain of salt because like one of these references is loosely based on a text in the torah and the other one's not but the rabbis say that like here is something that showcases job's hospitality he built his house on a crossroads and he built the house with four doors that open respectively to the four cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west. And he did that in order so that wayfarers like coming through the area might not have additional trouble being able to find an entrance and come in and find refuge and solace. Um, nice. and I, I just think that's really cool. Um, yeah. And then the second one, Abraham, uh, they reference that. Uh, his hospitality on Genesis 21 verse 33 where it says Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba and um, the tamarisk tree in like Middle Eastern geography and climate is uh, it it provides much more cooler shade than other trees in a desert climate and its root system is able to hold on to moisture when it rains uh, like more efficiently than other trees in the desert. And the rabbis were looking at that word, um, the Hebrew word for tamarisk tree. And um, I think it's like eshel. You go on the Blue Letter Bible and look at it. But um, they somehow like studied and they came to the conclusion that the the word is like an acronym for three different other Hebrew words that are showcasing like what he used the tamarisk tree for so you could break a shell into the first hebrew word which is ahila which is eating i'll see if i can pronounce this right shitaya drinking and lena sleeping and it's like the, 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 the rabbis are saying that abraham planted those trees as like a gateway to showcase the hospitality to welcome people into his home to do those three things with him within his property, his home, his resources, etc. I again t- take take it for what it's worth, but I just think it's awesome. Yeah, oh, I love stories like that. They they're not intended for us to uh, take every little bit literally, but they are to help us see and understand things. I, I love stories like that. And I have to say this, on one hand, good job, Abraham, and see if you catch this one, Samuel. Good job, Job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know what? Th- those are uh, Samuel, do you have anything else? <laughs> no. Okay. We're going to do it. We're going to literally do a cliffhanger right in the middle of this parable. We're going to come back and see what happens to the people who uh, didn't feed him when he was hungry, etc. So Classic. <laughs> we got that. Yeah, yeah. Eh, what are you going to do? Time is what it is. So, uh, Samuel, we're done. Okie dokie. <gasps> Thanks for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. 
and be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. Until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you.